Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. If you were paying attention to the news about the COVID-19 pandemic in New York City, you'll remember that two Army field hospitals deployed to provide support to the beleaguered healthcare system there. Today's guest is Lieutenant Colonel Jared McGee, commander of the 11th Field Hospital. In this podcast, we discuss what a field hospital is, what its capabilities are, and what it's like to move one from Fort Hood, Texas to New York City with only a few days' notice. This interview focuses mostly on the logistics of the movement to give listeners a sense of what it takes to accomplish something this complex and make it look easy. In the full-length version of the interview, we follow the discussion of the 11th Field Hospital's mission with a discussion of Lieutenant Colonel McGee's career. He started out in the Army as a combat engineer, running around the woods and blowing things up, as he said, to later getting a commission as an Army Medical Service Corps officer and becoming a health services comptroller. So he has had a varied and interesting career. He is also the Army Regent for the American College of Healthcare Executives, so we talk about the importance of professional organizations and how his ACHE contacts actually helped provide him intelligence as he brought his unit into New York. We conclude with a discussion about leadership. I hope you enjoyed this interview with my friend and former student, Lieutenant Colonel McGee, and if you do, won't you please leave feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever you might be listening to this recording. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Lieutenant Colonel Jared McGee. Welcome to the podcast, Colonel McGee. Thanks. It's good to be here. So you recently completed an unusual uh, deployment leading the 11th Field Hospital to participate in providing support to the city of New York in the Javits Center. So people probably saw this on the news, kind of made national news all over the place. But before we kind of get into that, to the actual experience, I'd, I'd like to, for the audience, to talk a little bit about uh, the unit that you lead and get a, get a little bit of background on, on what, that, what that is. So what is a field hospital? So well, first of all, let me let me uh, let me just kind of open with this real fast. Uh, just keep everything on the uh, on the right side of legal for me. Uh, anything I say, not views of the army, right? My own my own opinion. Uh, and and uh, if I speak of a, any individual organization, I am in no way of endorsing that uh, that organization. All right, just using them in name. Uh, so thank you. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, so, so a field hospital. The the best way to think about it for for your listeners would be uh, picture a, a hospital that you have in any one of your cities. So an acute, say like an acute care and trauma hospital. That's what we are. We are a modular 148 bed acute care and trauma hospital. The only difference with us is this 148 bed acute care and trauma hospital. We can box up and load onto trucks or trains or boats and ship it anywhere in the world at any time. So when you say acute care hospital, like what capabilities do you have? What kind of treatment can you do when that hospital is fully set up? So just like your local hospital, we can do everything from uh, primary care and physical therapy, social work services, behavior, uh, the full complement of behavioral health 
all the way up to emergency medicine, uh, neurosurgery, CT surgery, you name it. Then, of course, the, the full complement that goes along with that. You know, I have full complement of ICU nurses and ICUW nurses, medics, all the ancillaries that go along with it. We have uh, full pharmacy. We have full lab, uh, radiology capabilities, um, everything you would find down the road. Uh, but the difference is, is we're self-contained. We have to provide all, our, uh, all of our own power and water and food and <laughs> all that internally. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of amazing. And, and so you, you say you, you put it in boxes and send it someplace. How long does it take you typically, if you were to take that, the hospital, the full 148 bed uh, unit and out into a field environment, how long does it take you to normally set up to full capacity? So well, number one, we're, we're always ready, right? So, so we're always packed and ready to go. We can deploy anywhere in the world as fast as we can get our stuff loaded onto, onto vehicles to move out of Fort Hood. It takes a, a big team effort from, from a whole lot of folks back here and a whole lot of folks on the receiving end. But yeah, we can get out the door and as quick as we can load vehicles. So let's say you're you're loaded and your your all your boxes have been put down and wherever it is you're going to be. When would you be ready to take patients? Uh, we actually just did a validation exercise uh, not too long ago. By doctrine, we should be 100% ready to go in 72 hours. But okay. we beat that we beat that by about 35 or so percent. Uh, we had full ED oh. complement set up, ready to go in less than 18 hours, and uh, we were fully mission capable not long after that. That's pretty amazing. So, so from from boxes on the ground to 148 bed facility, ready to take patients in less than you said 18 hours for for ED capability, and then and then sounds like less than two days for for full full on capability. And that's assuming you're going to provide your own power, your own water, and all that as well. Like, that's that's kind of amazing. Seeing everybody get to work on it is nothing. It, it's it, the, the coordination that it takes, uh, everything from, you know, imagine building a building. You know, they, they have to start with staking out the land to figure out the dimensions of the hospital where each individual tent is going to go. To having everything up, including lights and water, uh, it's a uh, it's a dance that we really we should we should time lapse it just so everybody can see you know what it looks like with yeah. people running everywhere and forklifts and tents and you know trucks and it's it's a sight to behold for sure. So 148 beds. How many uh, how many people are we talking about when the unit is is 100% staffed? Um, just over 300, just over 300 people in, in just the, uh, the field hospital. And you say just the field hospital. So what do you, what else could there be around, around you then? We fall under something called a, a hospital center and a, a hospital center. Uh, you can think of it like a, a 26 person or so command and control, uh, node. So for, for your listeners, think of that as like a regional, a region, maybe a, a regional headquarters, um, a regional C-suite uh, where you have a, a CEO and a COO and, and a chief nurse and a chief doc, uh, and then the administrative staff uh, up there to support. And then underneath that, you also have my organization, the field hospital, 
which has its own C-suite. But then you also have some outlying clinics that fall underneath that hospital center as well. For example, our hospital center here, the Ninth Hospital Center under the command of Colonel Dave Hamilton, has two forward resuscitative surgical teams, a behavioral health attachment, and a veterinary surgical services attachment. So our hospital, then working in conjunction with them, we could we won't all be co-located, but if we were, now that organization balloons to over 500 people. Okay. Is there another, is there, are there two field hospitals under the hospital center? Is that, or is it just one? There is only one, but, um, but the, uh, by design, the hospital center can provide command and control or that, the, whether you want to call it mission command or command and control or uh, C-suite uh, oversight of two field hospitals. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. I, this is this is relatively new doctrine, so I, I, it's come into play since after I after I retired from the army. So I'm I'm, uh-huh. I'm learning as we talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So so you said three hundred or so people actually assigned to your organization, and then we talked a little bit about the hospital center and some of these other organizations that roll up under the hospital center. So thinking of your organization, thinking of the field hospital and the 300 people you have there, the model as, as it was back, back, in the, back in the day when I was involved and in, uh, uh, still in the Army, um, we, had a, we called it a PROFIS model, a professional filler system model, where if you were assigned to a field hospital, for example, you would, you would spend most of your days working in a, in a, in a, in a fixed facility, a, a, a brick and mortar building hospital, and you would get pulled over to the field hospital when the field hospital uh, went on a big exercise or, or actually got called up to deploy. Is that still the model with the field hospital or how has that changed? So it, it's, it's similar. Um, so I still have, I have organic staff here at the, the field hospital, but then we also have like, like the, the profit system, the professional filler system that you were just talking about. Um, we have something similar. I, you know, we still have a bunch of, of docs and nurses, you know, around the world uh, working in different uh, military medical treatment facilities. The difference is now are, are those, those providers are actually assigned to us. So if, if the call goes up that, uh, I remember I mentioned that we were modular. Um, if, if the call goes up that, we need to deploy either a certain module of like say just the icw of of the hospital i want to deploy 60 beds someplace which we actually did recently the call goes up for those people assigned to that 60 bed detachment those people show up and it's the same people that you know since they're assigned to us so those providers and nurses, they, they come, they fall in with the same teams they're used to training with. They fall in on the same equipment that they're used to training with. And then the only difference is, is the location that they may end up serving. So that's, uh, that's how the, uh, the new model is a little different. So you mentioned that you have docs and nurses who are, who are assigned to the field hospital, but, but when the field hospital is not actively engaged in an exercise or a deployment, they're working at a, at a, at a, you know, like I said, a, a fixed facility. So you're at Fort Hood. So I could imagine they probably work at the hospital at Fort Hood when they're not with you. What's the idea behind that? Uh, why aren't they just full-time assigned to you so that, you know, you could 
You could just take them and go. So I, uh, I can actually uh, expand on that a little bit there. Yeah, we're at hood, but not all of my folks are at hood with us. You know, I've got folks down okay. in San Antonio. I've got a, uh, let's see, our CT surgeon, I think he's out of uh, Tripler right now, out of Hawaii. Um, so, okay. <laughs> right. so Hawaii. All right. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the idea behind it is for, for our providers to maintain those clinical skill sets that they have to have to use in wartime, they get those, they get those skills and maintain those skills in our, in our fixed facilities. So they stay there and they provide services to the beneficiary population there. But then when it's time uh, for deployment, we call them back and they go with us. So you talked a minute ago about, about the field hospital itself is modular. And you mentioned you had like a 60 bed. So the whole hospital is 148 beds when it's in its full, its full capacity. What kind of arrangements? So you mentioned a 60 bed, you could, you could push out a 60 bed subunit. Like what are the what what are the examples of of the different arrangements that you could potentially deploy without um, deploying the whole organization? Uh, so we have a full capability thirty two bed uh, component uh, that can uh, push out emergency medicine, uh, OR capability, and recovery in ICU and ICW, along with ancillaries. Uh, we could push that 32-bed early entry capability all on its own. That's our, our headquarters, what we call a headquarters and headquarters uh, company. Uh, they can go out all on their own. We have a 60-bed uh, ICW that I spoke about earlier that we actually, you know, funny enough, we actually deployed it not too long ago. They picked up and went to the National Training Center in California. And uh, as an example of modularity, got plugged in to one of our sister field hospitals to do a training exercise down there. So, so you can, uh, we have that detachment. Uh, we have a medical augmentation detachment that'll provide dentistry and psychology and physical therapy services. And then we also have a surgical services, a medical augmentation detachment that provides another OR suite and, and those capabilities as well, the recovery capabilities, ICW and ICU. And then we also have a head and neck uh, surgical detachment as well on top of that. Wow. So all these things could, so it sounds like they could deploy by themselves and, and, and get a, they could be carved off from your organization and attached to like another, like you said, another field hospital or maybe some other medical unit. Exactly. They can go in support of somebody else if they have to. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about the organization, its remarkable capabilities, so I'd like to talk a little bit about your recent deployment up to New York City, uh, uh, of all places. You know, I can't uh, uh, I imagine you probably never thought you'd, you'd get orders to go to to New York City uh, in your in your current role when you took over. <laughs> it's funny. It was my it was my first time in New York City. That's one way to there. Yeah, that's one way to see it. Okay. Um, <laughs> So, so you're a healthcare leader. You've been in, you'd been in, in command for a year. Is that correct? One year last month. We actually, we actually had our, our, our first birthday for the ninth hospital center uh, and the 11th field hospital in the Javits center uh, in New York city on April 16th. Okay. So, yeah. so it's a brand new unit as well. That's, that's it great. It is. So, uh, I mean, as a healthcare leader, I imagine you were monitoring this, uh, the crisis closely. At what point, well, when did you really 
you know, as a leader, when did you become aware of the pandemic and when did you get, and what was your first kind of, uh, when was it first discussed with you that your unit might be uh, called on to go provide service there? Yeah, as uh, you know, in, in healthcare, I'm sure, you know, with you and, and, and all of your students and, and all, all of your listeners, um, people, people were paying attention to the, to the, to the news started seeing, you know, oh, this, this virus seems to be spreading pretty quickly across, uh, across China. And, oh, well, look at that, across the borders. Oh, look, it's starting to expand a little bit more. Um, and I think it was about the middle of January or so, if memory serves, that, uh, that it was declared a public health emergency of international concern because it was crossing those borders. Um, so at that point, we started doing a bunch of research on, okay, what does it mean to get, to get this disease? Uh, what, what does that do to a patient? Uh, and then as as the, we started getting those reports, you know, we would start sharing them with our providers across the across the world um, and talking about it internally. Just kind of kind of getting our, our head around it. Um, OK, should it should it come to us? What is it that we're going to have to do? What is it that we're going to have to be ready for uh, to take care of those folks? And then we actually got I think it was around March 18th. Uh, we got notified of a potential deployment. And those locations uh, were, were either East Coast or West Coast. So we were thinking, okay, maybe Seattle or New York, uh, maybe somewhere in California. And then at that point, we really started that, that planning. Okay, what would it look like for us to go ahead and, and pick up uh, and move out uh, to one of these places? And then uh, the, the next day, the warning order actually came. So, so we, ended up, we ended up getting the, the, the warning order less than 24 hours after we were notified of a potential deployment. What okay, so I, I know this terminology, but let's let's talk a little bit about what does that mean? A warning order. What do, what does a warning order mean in the military? So that that says, okay, you're gonna go, you're gonna do something, right? You're gonna do something. So so get get all of your stuff in order and get ready to go. That's that's what that means. It's a you can maybe call it a a heads up. Like somebody walks into your office and they're like, hey, heads up. This is getting ready to happen. <laughs> All right. So it's a very formal heads up. Very formal heads up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's probably the but, best way. And, and that, yeah. But at that point, uh, and, and, and the purpose of that is because not all the logistics have been worked out yet, not all the decisions have been made about the details of whatever's going to happen, but to kind of make sure people are starting to prepare to, to do something. It's going to, it's hopefully going to give you that, that kind of the situation, the mission, some, maybe some uh, command and signal stuff, some service and support. It's going to hopefully throw out the five W's for you. The, the who, what, when, where, why, uh, not necessarily the how, but, but at least get you started. Okay. So we're in the middle of March, March 9th, 18th, 19th. You're getting some formal, you've now gotten some formal notification. Yes, this is, mm -hmm. uh, this is going to happen. So what's the, what, what do you start doing when you get that warning order as the commander of, of a field hospital, you've been alerted through the warning order. What are the first things you start doing to prepare your unit for this, this mission? So like I said before, you know, we're always, we're always packed and ready to go. So at that point, it's really just a matter of coordinating all of our support agencies so that they can start picking us up and getting ready to, to move us wherever it is that we need to be. Uh, whether it's going to be on trucks or trains or boats to to get us to our destination, um, and then that goes along. That's just the equipment side of it, right? So that's 
in the in the grand scheme of things, that's that's relatively relatively simple. The biggest thing that you want to take care of is all of the medical and administrative processing for your soldiers, right? For the staff, um, and that's everything from making sure that everybody's medically ready to go. We'll say something like everybody's got 90 days of medications on hand if they have allergies or or something like that. To making sure that everybody's wills are up to date and their powers of attorney are set, you know, so that their families can be taken care of uh, back here, you know, you know, mom and dad back here or husband and wife can take care of uh, the family with, you know, certain legal actions if they have to, you know, all, all of those things. Uh, those are those are all the pieces that you put in motion. The other the other thing is, is just all the uh, locking in all the internal planning. Okay. All, all the concerns. Do we have all the, do we have all of our supplies on hand that we've asked for? Is it all loaded and ready to go? Those, all of those pieces and parts. That's, that's the process put in place. So at what point did you, you know, get the details of where you were going and, and what you were going to do and who you would be working with? Yeah. So uh, we got the, uh, so we got the notice on the uh, on the 19th that that real formal heads up the the warning order, and then it was on the 24th uh, that the deployment order came uh, down. Said, all right, hey, you're going to go to New York City, and we actually launched our advance party early the very next day on the 25th. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So so the you know we get the we get the formal heads up. Something that goes along with that, like I said, is is making sure everybody's stuff is ready to go. Uh, so then when we got the the actual deployment order, the very next day, those people are ready to go now. They get on the plane and uh, and they took off to New York City. Uh, they actually stopped en route and picked up a second field hospital's advance party uh, in Fort Campbell, Kentucky, picked those folks up, and then they continued on to, to New York City. Uh, then we ended up pushing out our main body. The, the, the biggest part of the force. We pushed all of our medical folks early. The main body deployed just one day after them on, on the 26th. So what, how was the mission described to you? Like, what were you told? This is what you're, you're, you're going to New York City. What were you told you were going to do? So we knew we were going to New York City. And we knew we were going to provide um, a relief valve uh, to the local hospitals in New York City, but we did not know what that was going to look like. We didn't know if we were going to be, you know, operating out of uh, operating a shelter like what was initially started at the Javits Center, or if we were going to be setting up, you know, our field hospital. And I mentioned we picked up uh, that other field hospital on the way. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to set ours up and then they were going to set theirs up someplace else what those locations may be. We, all we knew is we were going there to provide relief to the hospitals of New York City. That's, that's what we knew. A lot of the, the planning was actually taking place on the aircraft uh, on the way there. Wow, okay. <laughs> we, have a, uh, we have a great picture of, of, um, of three of our, of our principal staff folks uh, a guy named uh, uh, Major Pete Kirkendall, uh, Chief Polite, who's our engineer, takes care of setting up all that power and water stuff that we were talking about. And then Sorry. one of our one of our critical care doctors, uh, a guy named Major Sean Shirley, we got this great picture of them um, huddled around a, a map uh, and a computer on the airplane, figuring out where they could set the hospital down. You know, in the middle of Wall Street, you know, on a pier, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Wow. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, that's what we 
Wow. So you were on your way, you sent your advance. So that, that was the advance party you mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, I assume. It was. So, um, so how many people went, you know, in the advance party, uh, and you said they picked up with another field hospital. So how many people were you sending in that advance party? Uh, roughly. I want to say we had about, I, w- I want to say we had about 25, 26 people in that advance party. Uh, I may be off, you know, plus or minus a few. Uh, but the okay. purpose of the okay. purpose of the folks is to uh, is to to get you know get there in advance, um, hence the name, uh, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and and then set conditions for the arrival of the main body. Uh, so they start getting okay. all the logistics in place. You know where are people going to sleep, where are they going to eat, you know things like that. And those are all. I mean, they sound they sound mundane questions, but I mean you're showing up in the middle of a pandemic in a big city. Those are not insignificant issues, right? You can't, you can't do the mission if you don't have places where people can eat and sleep. It is a highly, it's a highly complex mission for the advanced party because, you know, when I say finding out, you know, setting conditions for people to arrive, that's not just uh, where people are going to eat and sleep for sure, right? That's all right, where are we going to set up the hospital? What kind of patients are we expecting to see? Uh, What's that volume going to look like? How are we going to get our supplies? How, who do we link in with to, to make sure we get resupply when we need it? All right. What about food? What about, um, what about fuel for, for all of our equipment? You know, they set, they set up all of that. How are we going to get patients in? How are we going to get patients back out when it's time to get them out of here? Those are all things that the advanced party starts working through on the way. And oh. when they get, there. yeah, it's really complex. So they're, they're arriving or they're on the plane making these plans. At what point did you get told, yes, you are going to be in the Javits Center? And how did that, and how did that uh, change your planning process? So when we actually, uh, we, we found out uh, when the main body, when the main body was en route, we knew we were going to start at the Javits Center. Um, that, that wasn't to say that we were going to stay in the Javits Center the whole time. Um, but we knew we were going to start setting up and staffing in the Javits Center. Um, but we still didn't know exactly what that was going to look like because the mission did evolve from day one till, till we, re- we redeployed. Uh, the mission, you know, kept, kept kind of evolving as the, uh, the conditions on the ground uh, changed. So we knew that we were going to go in and, and operate uh, in the Javits Center. But initially, it was kind of set up like you would expect to see a, a shelter. Um, you know, with the, uh, the FEMA, with the FEMA setup, like something, something akin to maybe following a hurricane or a natural disaster. That's kind of what you would, uh, you would expect um, to see. And that's, that's really what we started falling in on. Then of course, then that, that evolved uh, from there. So, so you, you started falling in on the Javits Center. So what was the, what was your understanding as you arrived? And, and you said the mission involved. So what were you told, okay, go ahead and set this capability up. Um, and, you know, and, and then how did it, how did it change over time while you were there? So we were there in support of federal and, and state agencies like FEMA, U.S. Public Health Service. Uh, and the state of New York. So we were there to provide support to them. So it, it started, like I said, with, um, we, we had something called inclusion and exclusion criteria. People who knew uh, uh, patients, acuity of patients that you'll allow into the facility um, and then people who we weren't gonna allow into the facility. And that actually started out pretty pretty strict. But then as, as um, you start seeing the demand signal from local hospitals, 
change to say, hey, we need to we need to uh, discharge people that are that may be COVID convalescing patients, uh, people who still need, let's say, and and I'm not a provider by by any measure. Say say we have people who need say six liters or so of oxygen still. They're not necessarily out of the dark, but they're definitely recovering. These are the people that we need to get into the Javits Center so that they can free up, they being the local hospitals, can free up more uh, ICU space. So then our mission set started evolving, right? We started, we started then taking those, uh, those patients with higher acuity. Um, and then once we saw that uh, we needed to bring in some patients with even a little higher acuity above that, it kind of evolved again. And we set up our own ICUs uh, within the Javits Center with with all the things that you hear about, like you know ventilators and monitors and and, and stuff like that. That's how it evolved from from day one and, until uh, about the middle of the middle of April is when we hit uh, peak capacity or peak census, or other I should say, uh, at the Javits Center. And all that happened okay. over the all that happened over the course of about two weeks. Uh, we went from two patients. Uh, to our our greatest census was over 450 people. I think I think we made that move from two to 450 in about 12 days or so. Wow! So you you so what were the assets on the ground? You mentioned FEMA had kind of started setting it up in the center. Um, were there other providers? Other other in in the facility already were there other medical units in you know of of from the state or from uh or were you guys the the providers of of care no we 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 did not do this alone uh this was a this was a whole of government approach uh to attacking a crisis so you had civilian agencies in support you had us public health service which is another uniformed service okay uh, there in support you had uh, reservists got activated. You had the Navy there. The Air Force was there. Um, National Guard was was there. Uh, you know, uh, in full force. Uh, you know, working. It was like I said, we weren't the only ones. It was a whole government yeah. approach and a giant team effort. Yeah. So how did you? So talk about that team and how that all was managed. And I realize you probably weren't in, you were not in charge of the whole thing, obviously. Um, Clearly. Uh, well, maybe not obviously to, I know. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Clearly. Uh, but so like, how did you, so how did you fit into that, that process? How was that process managed? And, and let me see, how did you fit into that whole process? Let me put it that way. So we brought, uh, you know, the, all the medical capabilities to bear that, that we've already we've already spoke of. Um, and then there was also another field hospital there um, out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky, like I mentioned. Uh, those folks actually fall under our sister brigade, which is the 44th Medical Brigade, uh, and they come out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina. So uh, the 44th Med Brigade um, commander, uh, Colonel Kim Aiello, she commanded the entire um, task force. Uh, which we uh, we named uh, Task Force Silver Dragon. Uh, so that was uh, that was great because we had two we had two different medical brigades. You had the Silver Knight First Med Brigade commanded by Colonel Rob Howe, and then the Dragon Medics out of the 44th Medical Brigade out of uh, Fort Bragg commanded by Colonel Aiello. Uh, both combined together, so we named it Task Force Silver Dragon. So uh, the 44th Med Brigade commander was the uh, was the Task Force commander. And we were placed uh, under her. 
So we operated in support of all those other agencies under her mission command. So was she, so you mentioned a whole bunch of other age, other government agencies, were they all under Colonel Iola? I don't know. Um, so everybody was there in support under, under the, uh, uh, under the, uh, the guidance of, of FEMA health and human services, uh, okay. and then in, in cooperation. So with the, the state of New York, right. So that, okay. yeah. So that was, that was their, their big operation. Okay. So she oversaw the, the army component, the two, the, uh, the two field hospitals as well as what else? So what else kind of, as, as well as the other, or, um, the other organizations that I spoke of. So we ended up getting, uh, Navy assets, uh, and reserve assets as well. Um, and then those folks, and so those folks ended up working in both the Javits center and in, in, in local hospitals, uh, in New York city. And to make her job even more complex, uh, she was the task force commander for the entire the entire eastern seaboard from uh, I think it was Maine to to Florida, so all those all those other regions. So wow. yeah, so she uh, she was mission commanding uh, folks going out and setting up alternate care facilities in in multiple other cities in in Jersey and um, and Philly. So what shaped your decisions or the or the Overall, not your per se, but the decisions, the policy decisions as to uh, what kind of patients were going to be allowed in, how long were they going to be kept there? You kind of talked about you went from two to four hundred and fifty. So clearly, there were just, there were changes over that period of time about who 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 you would take care of and for how long. I assume, right? So how how so what did that look like? How did it change over time? So the 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 driving factor there was was simply the demand signal. We needed to provide the we needed to provide the supply, right? That that the local hospitals needed. They need if they need to free up ICU space, then we need to take some of their recovering patients so that they can focus on those more acute patients. That's what drove it. So you were up to a census of 450. So you had, at one point, you had a, 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 as many as 450 patients in under your care. At what point did the did the uh, census start to drop, and what was driving that? So um, our peak census, I believe, was 453. That was that was the high point, and that all happened around 15 April or so. After that, um, we started to see the census drop. And if you compare that with kind of the curve you would see in, in New York, it follows that a couple of days, right? Which, which makes perfect sense. Uh, you, have, you have fewer people coming into the hospitals. They're able to decompress, right? So they're able to treat more of their folks, less people then coming to us, which means then our intake is going to start falling off uh, while our discharges continue. We expect to see that number come down. And that's exactly what happened. As a leader, Going into this situation, what were your main concerns? What were your uh, uh, going in, and, and how did that change over time? So my two my two principal concerns uh, rolling rolling into this um, were were people based. Number one, what's going to happen to the uh, what's going to take place with the families back here? Because, like I said, if if soldiers or you know sailors or airmen for that matter. If they can't focus on the job at hand because they're worried about the family back here, 
then they're going to be less effective. So that's that's one of the principal concerns is have we done everything that we can to make sure families are taken care of back here? Do we have the support structure in place back here to make sure those folks are taken care of? Um, and then the second concern are for those people that we were taking forward. So, and that, that covers everything from force health protection. Like I was, I was never concerned over, you know, are, are our folks going to have, you know, things like the protective equipment required. Uh, I was never concerned about that because I knew, I knew we had, um, I was never concerned over anything like, will they have the discipline to wear you know, to wear the PPE properly at all times. You know, I was, I was never concerned over those things. My big concerns were, okay, at what point are we going to, uh, at what point are we going to start overstressing that, that force? Are they, are we going to be able to give them appropriate work rest cycles? Are we going to be able to get them some type of, of step away time from the floor to let them recover? you know, for, you know, whatever that period of time is, are we going to be able to do that? So those were, that was my number one concern. It's how do we take care of the people who are taking care of the people? So you said you weren't concerned about protecting your, your uh, soldiers from the virus, but that seems like that, uh, were you doing testing uh, of your soldiers? Uh, How did you know because the virus is such a, it's such a tricky virus that we're dealing with where you have, where we have a lot of situations where people are asymptomatic. How did you know, how, how did you feel comfortable that your soldiers weren't getting sick themselves? So when, when I said I wasn't concerned about, when, I, when I'm, what I, what I said is I'm, when I'm not concerned about protecting them from the virus, I'm not concerned with them having the, the functional materials on hand like do we you know sure. do we have masks and do they have the discipline to wear their masks appropriately i i was very confident in in their ability to stay safe uh, from the virus while they were treating patients because we had a very deliberate uh donning and doffing protocol uh for them to follow so it, everything was overseen step by step to don your PPE and doff your PPE when you were entering and exiting the floor. So, uh, for example, if I went in, if I were going to walk on the floor, I, I approached an entryway that was maintained by people dedicated to a, to a station to get me in my PPE properly. So they would sanitize my hands. They would instruct me to, you know, put on my gloves. They would sanitize my hands over my gloves again. They would instruct me to put on a mask. You know, they would sanitize my hands. Again. You know what I mean? Uh, so they would they would walk us through the entire process of, of donning gloves and masks and eye protection and gowns uh, before we even entered the facility. Um, so once we were in the facility, then you could you could move about and treat patients. Um, I never treated a patient again. I'm not a provider. Uh, for our, our our providers and nurses, they would go in and they would treat patients. But then when it came time to leave the floor, they would go through that reverse process again with a single dedicated individual to a person walking them step by step uh, on how to get out of their PPE safely without infecting themselves. Wow. It was very deliberate. At what point was the, at what point were you told, okay, um, uh, we no longer require the your, your unit services. 
uh, prepare to redeploy? And, and what was that process like once you got that notification? So once we, once we saw the peak census and we started seeing it roll off, uh, and then we started seeing the uh, the census and local uh, and local hospitals start to roll off as well. Uh, we knew at that point the decision was going to start coming uh, for us to redeploy uh, part uh, or all of our force, um, or would we have to uh, redistribute them elsewhere, um, or would we actually get ready to go to say some other location in the U.S. Uh, those are all things we didn't know. So as we started kind of uh, uh, drawing down from from the Javits Center itself, we started preparing for a follow-on deployment to another unknown location. So there was a possibility that you weren't going to go back to Fort Hood and 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 back into kind of uh, uh, prepare mode. You were you were potentially going somewhere else. We didn't know. Uh, so all we knew is that we were. That's all we knew is that we were uh, we were drawing down from the Javits Center. Um, but like I said, all right, where could we end up next? So okay. kind of kind of stay frosty and uh, and get ready to go somewhere <laughs> else in the world. Okay, because at that point um, we didn't know if there'd be another a large outbreak someplace else. I mean, there was. Looking, looking back now, we, it probably feels like we knew more than we actually did at the moment. At hindsight, right? <laughs> You're, it's right, right, right. right? It's always. Hindsight, we can look back yeah. and, oh, yeah, we totally could have known. Uh, but no, of course not. There's, <laughs> no, knew. We, there's no way we knew uh, what the kind of the, the battlefield was going to shape up to look like. So eventually you did. Uh, so I guess the census continued to drop. At what point um, were you told, okay, you know, you're actually, you're going to go back to Fort Hood. I assume you did. That was the next step. You, you went back to Fort Hood or did you actually go somewhere else first? No, we, we came back to Fort Hood. So um, we discharged the, uh, the last patient, patient 1095 um, out of the Javits Center on, on May 1st. So it was after that point um, we started, we started getting ready to, uh, to go someplace else or, like I said, or, or potentially go back to Fort Hood. We didn't know. Uh, I want to say it was about maybe, maybe about a week or so after that. Um, I don't remember exactly the date that we got noticed that we would be coming back to Fort Hood. But at that point, we started uh, preparing to redeploy uh, by testing our folks and putting them in quarantine and uh, making sure that um, they were good to go, getting all their flights you know, ready and getting those folks set up to come back home. Then tearing down all of our equipment and sanitizing all of our equipment and getting it all boxed up and inspected and, and then getting all that ready to come home safely as well. And so one of the things uh, is a, a great lesson that I know uh, that we learn uh, speaking, you know, now me speaking as a former military person, you know, one of the things we, we learn right away uh, in our leadership training is that, uh, is the art of doing an after-action review or the, the need to do an after-action review or what we call an AAR. And this is a strength, I think, uh, uh, of the military uh, uh, that we learn from the thing that, from exercises like this. So I'm curious, I'm sure you had some sort of AAR process after this was over. What lessons did you learn as a unit from the deployment? 
And what would the unit do differently if you were presented with a similar situation in the future? And what did it do well? So the you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it's critical to capture lessons learned when they're fresh in your head. Um, and then, and then think about how you're going to, uh, actually exercise those lessons in the future. So they're, they're, I, I think the, the phrase we like to use is, uh, lessons learned, not lessons observed. <laughs> so, <Okay. laughs> so, uh, the, the biggest, you know, we, we, you know, we talk, uh, we talk often about, about being flexible and, and maintaining flexibility and execution. We actually, and, and the military is actually really good at that. You know, I, I think people have a, have an idea that, uh, things in the military are very rigid. Um, and that's true to, to a certain extent, but, um, the folks in the military are very adaptable. And that's actually the biggest thing that we got to see in execution here. The difference here was the flexibility and execution with folks who don't wear our uniform. And who aren't, um, you know, kind of embedded in our, you know, hierarchy and in, in our culture, um, in our cultural hierarchy. Um, so the biggest thing is that I noticed was how do you, how do you get in where you fit in uh, with people that you're not used to working for, or people, and those people are not used to working with folks like you. That was the biggest lesson learned out of here. Is is how do you how do you do that yourself? And then how do you foster an environment that lets other people do that as well? That's the biggest lesson okay. that I can this. Can you give a specific example of, of how that went well or, um, and, you know, and what you might, you know, uh, what other organizations might learn from your experience? Absolutely. One, some of the biggest things I saw were, were allow people to function outside of their quote traditional or maybe maybe uh, predetermined role um, if they have a certain skill set to bring to bear so it if you have a person who is in in function x but they have a skill that can really be used somewhere completely outside of their lane well you know what maybe that's the place for them in this operation uh, maybe you find that other thing that they're good at and, or you let them find it for you and let them bring it to the table and, and say, Hey boss, you know, I, I've got, I've got the ability to do this thing and I see a need for it over there. Do you mind? No, absolutely. Go do it. And that's, that's the biggest thing is, is you have to be able to, uh, kind of hold on loose, you know, let those, let those folks go out and, and, and let them run. So you made it back. Uh, you brought all your folks back. You're all back now, or are people still deployed individually? Or, or? so we ended up uh, we ended up deploying. Also, um, if you remember back to us uh, in, in the beginning of this conversation, the Ninth Hospital Center has some other subordinate organizations. Um, one of those is a behavioral health detachment. They deployed as well uh, in support of this operation, and they were out there working. Uh, with our folks to make sure everybody was doing well. And they were also out there nested in the hospitals uh, because remember, like I said, there was uh, the, the sister field hospital was uh, uh, operating mission command over folks who were working in local hospitals. So our behavioral health folks were out there working with those folks in those hospitals as well to making sure 
uh, making sure everybody was uh, kind of staying sound of mind. And those folks are getting ready to come back here in the next day or two. Wow. Uh, the the 44th, uh, the task force uh, commander still has some folks up there as well. Uh, so I know they're still operating, but I know that operation is uh, slowly starting to collapse. Uh, well, I guess I should say, I don't want to say collapse. I'm going to say it's slowly starting <laughs> to, <laughs> slowly starting to be uh, drawn down uh, and, and moved out of it. Okay. Um, Great. Well, I know what an amazing experience that must have been uh, to be there and support such a, a difficult time in, in uh, really in our nation's history. It's kind of an amazing opportunity. Um, and we're lucky that you are, you and your unit were able to be there. You know, it was, uh, it, it was hopefully a, a once in a lifetime event. Uh, and what I, what I mean by that is hopefully, you know, we never have to see anything like that again, but, but wow, did you get to see the humanity? It, it's amazing what happens when, uh, when, so many different people come together and, and work towards a, a, a common goal uh, that has has such an a, such an importance. You know, it has such a, a huge impact. Uh, you know, not just on on your organization, but on 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 the on the community. So it was it was inspiring. It was really inspiring to be part of it. Colonel McGee, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great to catch up. Yeah, I appreciate it. It's good to see you. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.